0: Good morning. We're glad you're here. Welcome. My name's Steve, and one of the ministers here, and uh, glad to have you with us if you're new to us, and uh, more to come on that later. Mark Proctor's not here. He's had muscle spasms all week, been down. So keep praying for Mark that uh, he gets the help he needs and uh, gets back. Uh, We miss him being here today, but glad he's taking care of himself, and it's good that spring is uh, upon us, right? Love, my son actually said last night he thinks it's easier to love Jesus in warm weather. But he's got issues, so I don't know what to do with that. But we all do, and that's why we're here. So let's pray before we go on. Our God in heaven, there is none like you. And we pause at the beginning of this new week to give thanks to you for all you've done and to be reminded of how good you are and to find balance for our lives for the week ahead. And I pray that as, uh, as we gather together today, you are pleased pleased even with the way we are attentive to the Word of God, that we may be well-established. We thank you in Christ. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 17. Turn your devices there or hard copy, however you have the Bible. It's good to follow along on your own, even though the text will be on the screen as well. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And the power of that gospel continues to take hold and change people's lives and homes and relationships and neighborhoods and cultures and schools and and workplaces and people groups around the world today. Now, we have people who say that in our culture, it's a little more difficult to believe. We're a more skeptic culture than the, the culture of the first century. But nothing could be further from the truth. The the century in which Christianity was born was a terribly skeptic culture. Nevertheless, that culture was gripped by the gospel. The book book of Acts was first written to a man by the name of Theophilus, who evidently needed some some help in in establishing his faith. So the book of Acts is basically a series of case studies about how this gospel penetrated the first century European Middle Eastern culture. And that's why it's helpful for us, because there's so many things that about it, even if it's a different culture, different time period, that still speak to where we are today. In fact, this gospel message of the first century was so powerful that it swept through the European culture And and, and the critics of it said, it it turned the world upside down. Let's pay attention to it. Acts 17, beginning with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives. Everyone, life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he'll judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. The persuasive power of the gospel is immense. There's not one piece of the fabric of life that it does not touch. And as it does its work, being announced and lived out, uh, change takes place at every level of human existence. Consider first the persuasive and cultural power of the gospel. The Bible again says, when Paul was waiting in Athens, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and Greek fear, God-fearing Greeks as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, Athens was the chief city of the day. It was no longer the military power it had once been because Alexander the Great was conquered uh, by, by the Romans and now it's the, the Roman Empire. But it's still an intellectual and cultural center of the day. The centerpiece of Athens is an area called the agora, which means marketplace. And, and in this agora, the marketplace, uh, it, you find the center of everything about life. It was the center for the media. In other words, if you wanted to know the, the, the headlines of the day, you would go to the agora. And there would be heralds there announcing certain victories of the kingdom or other matters that are of great importance to, the, to society and to that setting. Um, it, it was a financial center as well. It's where people came to do their business and to, uh, to, to invest whatever they had or to do their trade, whatever it might be. It was an arts center where artisans came to demonstrate their work, to present their work, to trade their work, to sell their work. It was also an intellectual uh, center in that it was there that political and philosophical ideas of the day were there. Luke writes, uh, the the writer of Acts, tells us that that they love to sit around and just talk about the latest ideas. So all this reminds us That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not to be regulated to Sunday morning worship, but it's to be taken into the center of the marketplace of ideas. It's where we do life. Wherever your life is taking you this way, this week, the gospel is the thing, the message that has changed your life. He's the Christ that's changed your life, and we take him out of this place. If you live religion, your relationship with God, as if it's a private matter that gives you peace and quietness and contentment, and that's all it is, you have missed the understanding of the gospel. The gospel does that, but it's to be taken out of this place, and to all the regions of our lives, wherever wherever life takes us. So Paul, in essence, took the gospel downtown. He took it to the, the centerpiece of everything. Doing so means everything is changing our lives. The way we do business, the way we interact with with people, the way we see people, the way we notice people, the way we uh, teach our classrooms. If you're a teacher, if you're a nurse or a doctor, it affects how you do all that and how you see people holistically. It affects when people oppose you. It affects how you respond to that. It affects the level of integrity by which we live. There's not one area of life that the gospel doesn't touch. It goes to the downtown of culture. It also goes to the Downtown of our very lives, a centerpiece of our lives, also. Jaroslav Pelikan was a former Yale historian, and he's dead now. But he wrote this when he was alive. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost twenty centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of super magnet, to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? The gospel has marked our world in every way. Consider these few shards of the the fragments of the gospel in culture. Children, for instance. Children in the ancient world were left to die because of exposure to the elements, often. Nobody thought anything of it. They were uh, sold into slavery. But when Jesus was here, and the disciples tried to keep the kids away, Jesus said, don't keep the kids away from me. In fact, nobody can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they become like little children. And so he elevated the worth of a child. We see that played out through and through our culture. Education has been affected. The love for learning grew out of Jesus' influence in society because monasteries were established to, to, uh, to uh, embrace the mind. They became the cradle of academic guilds. The universities of Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard and others were Jesus' inspired efforts to more love the Lord our God with all our minds. And so the gospel impacted education. In the realm of compassion, Jesus had universal concern for the poor, for the disenfranchised, for the marginalized of society to a level unheard of in the ancient world. They began to have a heart for the hurting and the sick, the lepers. And out of such compassion, hospitals grew, even to today that we have so many Christian names over titles, of hospitals in our nation and world today. Consider the area of humility. Now, the Athenians were virtuous people, but not regarding humility. That was not spoken of. That was not heard of. It was not seen as a virtue wanted, this virtue of humility. In fact, in the first century, there was a man by the name of Plutarch who was an, an early biographer of the first century. He wrote a book entitled, How to Praise Yourself Inoffensively. I think it could be a bestseller in our nation today. But Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He said... I've come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He elevated this virtue of humility to a new position unheard of in the ancient world. In the area of forgiveness. In the ancient world, you you, you rewarded your friends and you kept opposing your enemies. When Jesus from the cross announces to his father... Before his very executioner's father forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. His whole life message, even the way he died, impacted the culture of the ancient world. It's what happens when Jesus is Lord. Hannah Arndt was the first woman um, who achieved professorship at uh, Princeton University. And she wrote The discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. In the era of human humanitarian reform, Jesus championed the excluded. He irritated those who were in power. He lifted up the worth and value of women. He taught masters how to treat their slaves, and slaves how to respond well to their masters, even if they weren't treated well. There's an early text that's still in existence, it's a letter to the early bishops that that informed them to stop pausing in your sermons to note the wealthy people walking in. Instead, sit among the poor on the floor who are among you. Everything, Everything changed with the gospel. We elect presidents of our nation to change the way things are. And over time, we would all admit, not much changes. But consider the influence of this one unelected carpenter who continues, whose message continues to endure and spread across the world, changing people and cultures and families and whole people groups. This is the influential power of the gospel when it is applied to culture. Now, with the gospel of Jesus... Isn't changing the culture of your marriage, the culture of your parenting, the culture of your work and how you do your work, isn't changing the way you see the world or see people or treat your enemy or those who are different from you, then the gospel yet hasn't, hasn't penetrated your heart and gripped your heart to the extent it, it is intended to. So you keep going deeper with it and open your heart to it and let it transform you. They consider the intellectual power of the gospel. Verse 18 says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting in the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? Now, I'm not a philosopher. I don't even, I'm, I, I took philosophy, but I squeaked by. I, I, it's hard to get my head around philosophers, but basically, hey, there, there were two schools of thought in Athens shaped by the Epicurean philosophy and the Stoic philosophy, philosophies that began about 300 B.C. So it's been existence these three centuries. It's influenced the, the thought base. Basically, the Epicurean's philosophy was whatever you can do to avoid pain, do it. They were, they were more about pleasure. When we were in, in uh, uh, college at Cincinnati, uh, we would go to the one of uh, near, nearby mounts, and there was a coffee shop there called the Epicurean. It means eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's sort of the Epicurean philosophy. You probably know people that way, or, or you yourself was that way. Grab Michelob. Their old, uh, their old tagline was, grab all the gusto you can. You only go around once. That's sort of the Epicurean philosophy, okay? The Stoics, on the other hand, they were more virtuous. <sighs> they believed and a higher rationale or reasoning that was above them. Not a personal God, not a God, but just something that we should live by. They lived by fate. No matter what happened, that's determinism, it was already laid out by the impersonal nature of the universe. We have to be careful about what we say. When you say everything happens for a reason, That's really a touch of the Stoic philosophy. Que sera, sera, what will be, will be. That's how they live. Now, if you've studied John 1 1 before, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John purposely used that word, word, because it's the Greek word, logos. That's the Stoics. They believed in logos, that there was this impersonal, something out there that ruled the universe. So when John was writing his gospel, he's saying, I'm going to tell you about the one you don't know about is Jesus. See? So here in this case, Paul's doing the same thing here. He, he, he's looking at this city and what they've been shaped by. So these these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and and, and the people who followed their thinking did not believe that the gods were involved in life. If there are, there probably aren't gods, but if there are gods, they're totally disengaged. They have nothing to do with how we live day by day. And so these these leaders were intrigued by what Paul had to say. It was a, a new idea, maybe for no other reason than that. And so they invited him to the Areopagus, which is sort of the town council. It's comprised of the intellectual and financial elite of the city of Athens. What an opportunity. It's like a a great evangelist today being able to sit with the combined faculties of Harvard and Princeton and Yale and MIT and getting it all together. It would be the equivalent of that. So, so, So this is Paul appealing to these skeptics. And two points of challenge he presents. First of all, he points out a major contradiction. He says in verse 23, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. In other words, what Paul is saying, look, you say there is no God. Uh, You say that there that that, uh, if there are gods, they're uninvolved, that they're removed, but that's not how you live. You claim certain virtues. Well, why do you live virtuously? Why is that significant? Why, where do virtues come from if there's no God? If gods are removed from the way you live? He's saying that's a contradiction. You know, it's the same way in our life today. It's the same way in our culture. We have an increasingly godless culture. Our culture is increasingly saying there's no source of truth. There's no source. What you say is true. What I say is true. We don't have to agree on that. We can live by a different standard from each other. We don't really need God. But our culture, our nation, still loves certain virtues, like kindness. We see those signs everywhere, be kind. Why? Why should I be kind to you? See? Uh, uh, Morality. We teach our kids morality. Uh, Even people who don't believe in God and follow Jesus want moral kids. Why? Who says what's moral? Who isn't moral? You see, we're a post-Christian society where we like the values of what Christianity offers without submission to the king. Without submission to the God, it's the same kind of thing. It's the same. It's a contradiction in our in our culture and our life. One professor puts it this: Norman Geisler tells about a college student, university student, who wrote a paper um, defending his thesis that God does not exist. There is no basis for morality, no basis for right and wrong, for fairness, for justice or anything else people will say is good. He turned the paper in, the paper came back, and the professor wrote on it, F, I don't like blue folders. And the student was livid. And so he marched and said, "Why you can't do that. I, I, I poured myself in this, I made a good argument for it. What, this doesn't, doesn't fit, he said, it does. You just made an argument that there's no basis for right and wrong. And for fairness or justice or rightness or morality, I don't like blue folders. So you get an F. Now, eventually, the professor did give him an A, but the student had a completely different understanding about, about his argument and had to revisit it. Sadly, our nation, people, our, our, our country has stopped thinking. <laughs> stop thinking about what they say they believe or don't believe and what it means to everyday life. It's the same thing Paul is pointing out here. Secondly, he points to the bodily resurrection. At the end of his message, he says that God gave proof by raising this Jesus from the dead. What he's doing, he's arguing that the basically, you have to get to this point. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not. Now, I'm, I meet people who say, yeah, I, I think probably so, but I don't know about this creation thing. I don't know how God could create. I mean, how can you have a God that exists forever? How can you have a God who creates out of nothing? There had to be something. I, I, don't, I don't believe in the church because it's just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. My point is that Whatever argument a person may have falls in the shadows if Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's all, that's our beginning point. Do I have questions about God and how he behaves? Um, The mystery of, of, of some passage in the scripture that I try to understand why God did what he did? Certainly. Do I have things about prayer that I don't understand? Do I have some doubts and questions that come up? Sure I do. Are there, is, is everything about faith nice and tidy? The longer I live, the more I see how messy faith journey really is. But I do know that Jesus raised from the dead. And because of that, that's enough for me to continue working through all the other avenue, avenues as I grow in my faith and understanding my faith. Now, why do I believe that? I believe that because there is too much evidence of people who saw the living Christ after his crucifixion. He saw him, they saw him after he rose from the dead. How do I know they really saw him? Why weren't they making that up? Because they went to prison over it. They were dragged out of their homes. They lost their jobs over it. They were killed for it. You you don't do that for a lie. You don't do that for make-believe. You do that. When you know it's absolutely true. And we have the record of this. And out of this, our lives have been impacted. This is how the first century world moved from skepticism to belief the rationality, the reasonability that Jesus really was the Son of God. And he was died and buried, and he rose from the dead. On the third day. But then there's a third power. And that is the personal power. Of the gospel. You've heard me say before. By the 300's. A.D. One half of the, of the urban centers. Were Christian. One half. That's an amazing thing that happened. In the course of the gospel. That kind of power. At the end of this text it says. There were some who became followers of Paul. Not many. A couple names are mentioned there. The power of the gospel, the real personal power of the gospel, is really seen at the very first verse we read in verse 16. It says, When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. Now, if you write in your Bibles, or if you have your device, highlight that word distressed. That word is a difficult word to translate into the English language. It's a complex word. It's a word chock full of complex emotion. And the best way to describe it is those of you who have a kid or a grandkid. And you watch as they grow up them start making bad decisions that are different from the upbringing you gave them. You you gave them certain standards by which to live certain ways to live, to have a healthy adult life. And then you watch them make that choice and you start grieving within because it's not just an affront to your parenting. That's very secondary. What hurts you is you know the scars that are are gonna come about because of those decisions. You see the choices they're making and you see life that God has for them be drained out of them because that's not what you were designed for. You were designed for something better than the choice you just made. Not only does that choice oppose what God says in his word, but it's not he has something more for you. And so you grieve over the child. You see, the sad thing, when people think about God, they often think he's just so loving, he ought to just wink at us and love us all and save us all. If he's that loving, why can't he just let us all go to heaven and that's all? There are other people that say, God is such a man. He's always mad at somebody. He's always killing somebody or doing something. He's angry. He likes to get even with people. And both of those are deformities of the person of God. This is God. He's distressed when he looks at the world. But he, he looked at you and me, and he said, I love them, but I lost them and I don't want to buy him back. And so Jesus was sent so that our our lives could be redeemed and restored and put back to working order. And those of us who believe and follow Jesus, that's that's what we're in the process of doing. Our lives being brought back to right order again. And so when Paul looks at Athens, that's how he sees the city. He's grieved because, oh, there's so much better for you. And he had to speak into it, out of the love of God. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he was saying, "I hate sin so much. I hate the sins that you've committed," he says. But I'm willing to pay the penalty for those sins. And I love you so much that I'm happy to do so. What love is that? Can you get that today? What love is that? That he's willing to die and he's happy to do it so that we can have life. And so when the sermon was presented today, we went from culture to intellect Personal power. And yet, fleshed out, it happens in the opposite way because it starts with experience God on the personal level. Because you don't have to know much to come to Jesus. All you have to know that you've got some shameful things in your life that you know are contrary to God's will and standard, even your own standard, that you've sinned, that there's shame in your life. And so so you don't have to know much. A lot of people will tell me, I just don't think I know much about the Bible. What's to know outside the fact that you are shameful, you have lived your life on your own, outside the authority of the Lordship of Christ, and I need to be right with him. And so that's the starting point. And then what happens? Then you start studying. And what happens Paul says we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our intellect is affected and our minds expand and grow and we start to understand the movement of God through history and his story unfolds so that I'm included in his ongoing story. And then what happens? After I come out of the word of God and learning about him and my mind is changed, it flows out of my life. And the way I, I do my life, the way we do our family, the way we love our spouses, the way we raise our kids, the, the way we do business, how we spend our money, everything has changed because Jesus has rescued us from our shame and bought us back. This is the gospel, friends, and this is the power of the gospel that changed the first century world and turned it upside down. That, those first century believers loved their culture to death. That culture died in its brutality. It died in its violence. It died in its view toward children. It died toward its den- in its denigrating view toward women and its treatment of slaves and disobedience to masters. All that died because of the gospel. And my challenge to us today as a church, let's love our culture to death. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, when we leave here today, we're going into a world that is in so much need and so much pain. And I pray, Father, there is a, a certain level of distress that we will carry with us a grief as we listen to the news or watch the news, and as we engage people in conversations who are far away from you. I pray for anyone in this assembly, Father, who's trying to work it out. Maybe anybody in this assembly who once was close to the heart of God and no longer. Or those who have never understood the love of God and the intensity of it. And I pray all of us will come a little bit nearer today and be change agents in this world because of what has happened to us. May you be praised in Jesus' name.